In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so make sure everybody has uh, the Holy Spirit cheat sheet here. And before we we jump into my presentation on Pentecost, uh, a few possible announcements. Uh, I'm getting caught up after a very busy and productive spring, and so hopefully in the next few weeks uh, I'll be sending notices around about uh, possibilities of music practice for anybody who's interested. some workday opportunities, and another thing I've been talking to the brothers about, we started a practice last year of, from time to time, uh, making up little lunch packets to bring to the homeless in the area. Uh, we have, if you, if you know about Bridgeport and the surrounding areas, we have a number of sort of colonies where uh, homeless people gather, and we get a lot of people who come to the door asking for help. So uh, we'll just make sandwiches and things like that and then drive around and drop them off. So if you're interested in uh, helping us with that, that would be really uh, great help because uh, then we can share in that, that ministry. And I think it's important for us to stay in touch with the poor in our neighborhood. So, so I'll be uh, contacting you about all of that. I also will be sending around the next five podcasts in the next couple of days. And we'll get back on track there too. Uh, my producer is done with school for the year, so we can, we can go back to working on this uh, together. Okay, uh, Father Edward, do you have any announcements for today? No? Okay, good. Um, I also uh, want to take an opportunity to say thank you again for all the help uh, with the ordination, Father Timothy's ordination. I thought it went splendidly well, and the reception was just fantastic. Uh, so thank you all very much. And uh, it's a good dry run because next year, God willing, we'll have two uh, men being ordained to the priesthood, which will be very exciting. So today, I would like to speak to you about the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's pretty much a cliche uh, over the last 40 years or so to say that in the West of the church, we've forgotten about the Holy Spirit or we don't pay enough attention to the Holy Spirit. Um, so I won't dwell on that, but I will say we probably do need to, to think more frequently, to ask the, the help of the Holy Spirit more frequently, to see the spiritual life is what is really what salvation is all about. Uh, it's interesting that the whole goal of the incarnation and the Paschal mystery is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of the faithful and the union of our life with God's life through the Holy Spirit that we share. Uh, and it's, it's you know, almost daring to say that, that we share the Holy Spirit, but it's true. Uh, the Spirit is God's gift to us. So a couple of thoughts just about the Holy Spirit in general, and then I'm going to go through you know, some really good resources we have in our tradition to think about the Holy Spirit and the spiritual life. So the first thing is that when we talk about having a spirit of something or other, uh, it's important to understand what that's like. So for instance, um, when... I was, I'll go back to my old musician examples. When I was uh, trying to make it as a performing musician, we discovered that we could make a lot more money doing jazz uh, ensemble stuff than we could our, our original stuff. 
And uh, the problem was I, I wasn't very good at uh, jazz piano. Uh, it's a pretty complex uh, thing to learn. I, I loved it. I grew up listening to big band music. My, my dad was a big fan of Buddy Rich and Doc Severinsen and Count Basie. Um, but I never really learned to play that style. So I worked at it, and when I would first try to solo uh, our bassist, uh, who really was a jazz guy, he really knew how this worked, he would say, yeah, you sound like a classical guy playing jazz, you know? Uh, you're like playing scales and arpeggios. You need, to, you need to just sort of let it speak a little more. So what I did is I just listened to uh, recordings of Bill Evans and Thelonious Monk over and over and over again. And then I started to realize that if I practiced enough and uh, learned enough licks, when I was improvising, suddenly I would realize, oh, this, this, uh, this riff just came out, you know? Uh, and it sounded actually kind of authentic. And it was as if at those times I was channeling the spirit of Thelonious Monk to, in some very small way. Uh, I could suddenly hear, oh, that actually is idiomatically correct in this style, whereas what I used to play was more like, you know, Billy Joel snuck into the session and, it, you know, it wasn't quite the right spirit. Um, similarly, if you look at Western literary tradition, if you start with Homer and uh, the Iliad, and then you look at Virgil and his Aeneid, and then you look at Dante and his Divine Comedy, then perhaps if you want to really make a stretch and say James Joyce, for instance, uh, try, or Ezra Pound kind of riffing on... Uh, the style of these previous authors, each one of them is deliberately trying to evoke the spirit of his predecessors. Uh, so Virgil is quite clearly well-versed in Homer and he is writing in a Latin style, something that partakes kind of of the spirit of Homer. Dante even goes so far as to make Virgil one of his characters in the Divine Comedy. So the Divine Comedy really, again, is channeling Virgil's literary influence and so there's a kind of spirit of, of western literature that blows through all of these important authors. A last example, another musical one, uh, when Beethoven was young and he came to Vienna to study with Haydn, uh, Mozart had just died a few years earlier and um, after Haydn had taught Beethoven for a little while, he said, uh, my prediction is that Mozart's spirit is going to be awakened again in you. And there's a lot of truth to this. It's probably an apocryphal story, but it's very clear if you study, say, the piano works, which I'm most familiar with, of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, you see that uh, Haydn kind of gets the thing rolling, and then Mozart and Beethoven take it up, and this incredible spirit of the, the classical sonata is born. And in each case, again, they're kind of partaking of the spirit of their predecessors. So without Mozart, Beethoven probably couldn't have written the sonatas that he did. Uh, you see him inspired, inspirited by his predecessor. And so when we talk about having the spirit of God, it's something like this. It is partaking of God's own spirit and seeing uh, things from God's perspective and having the kind of creativity that God has. Um, so we look out at the world and instead of seeing things, say, in a scientific spirit, uh, which isn't bad necessarily, or seeing things in a political spirit or in an American spirit or whatever else, we see from God's perspective. We look out at created things and we see how God has left his imprint on uh, the different types of animals, 
on the way the stars look at night, the way the seasons change, uh, the way words work, uh, the way human beings interact with each other. We start to see all these things infused with God's spirit. And so we see that they're good. They see that they mediate God's presence to us. This gift of the spirit comes, as I said at the very beginning, uh, through the Paschal mystery. In John's gospel, when he recounts the passion of our Lord, when Jesus says it is finished, he bows his head and uh, John, who's so fond of wordplay, he, he says, you know, he breathed his last. He, but breath in Greek also means spirit. And uh, you can also translate this as he handed over the spirit. So Jesus' own breath, his own spirit, he gives to us at the moment of his death. How does this work? What do, how do we interpret this? There are many ways to look at this. One way I think is very key is that in, in this picture that, you know, this icon that we put everywhere uh, in our homes, in our churches, and so on, we see what God is really like. That God will actually, our Lord Jesus Christ will actually take death upon himself. He'll take our human nature to himself. Uh, He will partake in our death so that he can lead us to the Father through the resurrection. Uh, We also see in this the mystery of evil because we see that we're the sorts of people who could do this to God, right? So we could actually, we do this to each other, right? So we see the mystery of evil and the mystery of redemption in one instance of inspiration. We see the, the sacramental gifts of the church poured out from Jesus' side. Uh, we start to see things in a different way. Where we used to be afraid, so we look at the apostles after uh, the resurrection even, when suddenly they receive this insight, this gift of the Holy Spirit, they're not afraid anymore. They're not afraid of getting killed. <laughs> they're not afraid of being arrested. They're actually happy when they get arrested because they say, ah, you know, we're finally, we're on the other side of this. We're on God's side for a change. Before, when, this, when Jesus was arrested, we ran away because we were too afraid. But now with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can boldly say, this Jesus is Lord. And if you want to be saved, believe in him. Uh, And we can say that without fear. Uh, I think we can use a lot of this in our our contemporary situation. And so, you know, learn this prayer. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. (laughs) Enkindle them the fire of your love. You know, give us this boldness, this fortitude, uh, this ability to speak well, to be persuasive, to be convinced, you know, to have conviction in in what we believe so that when we witness to other people, uh, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of being contradicted because the Spirit will tell us what to say at that moment. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is, as I said, the, it's, it's the whole goal of creation is the divinization of these creatures that are made in God's image and the regeneration of human beings uh, to share God's own life. Uh, we, we share in this again by giving, being, having the perception this, this understanding, this way of looking at the world where we see God's perspective and we see his presence in all things. Last thing I'll say by way of introduction, then we're going to jump into the, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, is when I've spoken about Lexio Divina, I often talk about the spiritual sense of the text. Right? So we talk about the literal or historical sense and then the spiritual sense. And within the spiritual sense, there are 
uh, subdivisions, three of them. Uh, there's the Christological sense, the moral sense, and the eschatological sense. And this often perplexes people, it feels very unfamiliar and strange and difficult and so on. Uh, if, we, if we read with the Holy Spirit, though, it will become clear to us what these senses mean. And the first thing is, again, uh, as I said, the first thing about the Holy Spirit is it reveals the meaning of, of this, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that when we read the scriptures, we say, aha, God's been talking about this all along from the beginning. God's been predicting that he's going to send his son and this son of his will redeem us from our sins. It's all over the scriptures. The prophets were right. So, so God spoke through the prophets, but before we received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we couldn't see it. Now I see it. I get it. So if you're having trouble seeing this when you're doing Lexio, ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. Uh, you know, God won't refuse this gift. Um, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, who of you would give your son a stone when he asks for bread? Answer, none of you, right? No one would be that mean to his son. So if you who aren't very good compared to God know how to give your children what's right, how much more will God give you gifts uh, to those who love him, right? To his children. Luke, in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, changes this, this teaching slightly. Jesus says, uh, if you who are evil know how to give your children good things, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit is the main gift of God. We can't obtain the Holy Spirit by ourselves. Uh, we can't buy the Holy Spirit. That was Simon Magus' uh, mistake, right? He thought you could get the, the Holy Spirit by bribing the church. You can't do that. But you can ask God, and God wants to give us this gift. He wants the Holy Spirit to deepen in us an understanding and appreciation of God's other gifts. Uh, to change the way we think, to change the way we feel, to become holy, to become saints. Uh, so this is the sanctifier spirit does this for us. Uh, and... When we read the scriptures again, we start to see, we get insight into how all of this works. And, you know, stay with it and the Holy Spirit will enlighten us with uh, wisdom and understanding. Okay, so in the Catholic Church's tradition, we talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. Um, my mother, uh, she often likes to... Uh, reminisce about the good days when she was a kid uh, in the church. And uh, she says, they don't teach the gifts of the Holy Spirit anymore. I don't know if that's true, but uh, this is a big deal for my mother. And uh, they're in the catechism. Uh, and this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit come from Isaiah chapter 7. Is that right? Maybe it's 10. I forget. Somewhere in there. Uh, there's this prediction that, you know, the... The God will give the gifts of the Spirit to the Messiah. And so Jesus is the model for these. In scholastic thinking, uh, these seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are ways that God perfects the virtues in us. So the virtues are, are given to us. They're, they're connatural to the human person. They, we have them sort of in potential when we're born, all of us as human beings. Uh, we can grow in virtue by exercising courage, prudence, justice, and temperance, 
faith, hope, and love. So by exercising, making acts of faith, making acts of fortitude, we become more faithful, we become more courageous, etc., etc. And this is something that Aristotle knew. So this is not something you, you don't have to uh, have faith to understand the cardinal virtues. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit then perfect these in a, in a spe- specific way, in a way that we can't obtain on our own. That's why they're gifts again. So for instance, um, wisdom uh, perfects, the counsel actually is the one that perfects prudence in a special way. So prudence, we can become more and more prudent by uh, learning how to make good decisions, learning when to make good decisions by learning from our mistakes about if we acted too quickly or waited too long, uh, if we were too strong in our uh, giving our opinion or if we were too weak and we didn't want to say what we thought. So prudence finds the golden mean between these problematic extremes. But counsel gives a special insight into particular instances when we need to make a decision and the Holy Spirit enlightens us. We see the situation clearly all of a sudden. We say, aha, that's what we need to do. Um, this, is, this, is what God, this is what God's will is in this circumstance. Let me just go through these one by one. There's a little bit of artificiality in the church's tradition about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but I wouldn't let that bother you too much. Uh, the truth is that God can give, God's Holy Spirit being infinitely good there's always something for us to gain from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we can never have the Holy Spirit in total fullness because of God's inf- infinity and our creatureliness. Um, so no matter how much we grow in virtue, there's always something more to be gained by the Holy Spirit's gift. So wisdom acts upon intellect and will. What that means is uh, not only do we know what's right and good and true with our intellect, we desire it. We want that. We see the beauty of it. We're, we're, we're drawn to good action, to, to, uh, to the truth being something beautiful. Uh, the, the truth radiates out. And this wisdom makes us uh, have an affinity for the truth. So we just sort of know it in our bones. So it's not only our intellect, but our affect corresponds to the truth. A wise person you know, seems to intuit what to do from feeling it, you know. Uh, This is not to say that if we feel something's right, that we have the gift of wisdom. (laughs) But that wisdom actually conforms that affective part of us to the truth. So sometimes uh, when I talk about monastic discipline and the importance of checking our feelings and working with our intellects to curb, working with reason to curb our desires so that they correspond to what's true. Sometimes I've been criticized, uh, not mostly by people who aren't Catholic, of being sort of too dry. Um, that's not the, the point, um, though I may, maybe my own presentation has improved over the years because of this criticism. I just think in, in the current climate where we're inclined to conflate the spiritual life with how we feel, it's really important to be a little suspect of our feelings at the beginning and to learn through temperance, uh, through chastity, where proper mean is. Uh, and then once, we're, once we have achieved a certain amount of chastity, then, for instance, we can say with wisdom when another person is, uh, there's a, we can praise God for someone else's attractiveness without 
stirring lust in ourselves, right? So we can see a kind of wisdom. Yes, God has made people beautiful and proportionate and so on. And, and that's a good thing. But then there's this greater good, which is uh, our spiritual lives, the way we think, the way we act, our uprightness, our, our justice and so on is even more attractive. And this is not mixed anymore with lust. So I just think in, in a world where we give in too quickly to our feelings, we have to check that more carefully than we maybe would have, I don't know when, I don't, maybe, maybe there was a, a time when people didn't give into their impulses as much as, or uh, less than we do now, but maybe not, I don't know. I think it's a perennial problem for human beings, <laughs> being bodies and souls together. Uh, but anyway, wisdom coordinates this, these two parts of our being, our bodies and our souls. Understanding helps us to relate all truths to our supernatural purpose. Uh, so we see everything that's happening to us. Uh, we see God's revelation as pertaining to us. So when we hear that, uh, you know, God made us uh, to know him, to love him, to serve him in this life and in the next, uh, to enjoy him, we hear about the beatific vision. Maybe when we first hear about the beatific vision, we think, hmm, sounds kind of dull. Like we sit and look at God all day for the rest of eternity. Uh, so this lacks understanding, right? Once we understand what the beatific vision is, we won't want anything other than it. So again, if we don't understand it yet, ask the Holy Spirit for the gift of understanding so that God's supernatural truths will mean, they'll imply us in some way, you know? And it won't just be like, oh, that, that weird scholastic stuff or mystics, they seem to be so far away from me. This is all true for us at various times. We don't understand exactly. We have to take on faith uh, what we're told about eternal life. But then the, the Holy Spirit can give us the gift of understanding. And we go beyond, can I say that? Go beyond faith. Faith is perfected in understanding. Right? Faith seeks understanding. So there. Counsel I've already talked about a little bit. Um, it's, it helps us to see in particular cases... Uh, what God's will is. Uh, and so prudence gives us sort of general principles for how to act. Uh, and, you know, we get a sense of how quickly we need to act in certain circumstances. Maybe we need to wait. The gift of counsel gives us insight into all kinds of tricky situations that are in our particular uh, environment at that moment and helps us to make the right decision. So again, this is really important. Today's world is very confusing uh, to know sort of how to act as Catholics. Uh, but the Holy Spirit can illuminate us in, in these hard decisions. Fortitude. Fortitude is also the name of a cardinal virtue. And so the way Aquinas and others distinguish between fortitude as a gift of the Holy Spirit and as a virtue is like this. Fortitude as a cardinal virtue um, helps us to do the action that we know is going to be hard and painful, but do it because it's right. So soldiers need courage because if you're going to go out and fight a war, it's going to be scary and you're going to be afraid and you're going to want to run away. Or you're going to have the opposite rash, uh, rashness and think like, well, if I've got to do this, I'm just going to run out there and start hacking away at everybody. So... To, to fight well requires courage, right? So to know how to handle your weapon, 
how to execute uh, whatever your general tells you to do, um, and not to flinch when it gets scary, not to run away, right? Uh, we need this in, in daily life more than we probably realize because there are hard things. We don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, but there's something we need to do. And uh, we may suffer for it in some way, but, but it's the right thing. And so we need courage or fortitude. Where the gift of the Holy Spirit comes in has to do with our approach to suffering, which again is part of what's revealed in the Paschal Mystery is that suffering conforms us to Christ. And so when we suffer, we have endurance and perseverance. We don't, we don't get discouraged because we have fortitude. We're, we're able to stay in place and not uh, try to cheer ourselves up or something like that. But we understand that God is, is uh, shaping us to be conformed to Christ's example. Sometimes I use, uh, I, I used to use this, this image more often about the, what a monk does. Uh, so we have this charism of stability or this vow of stability and um, might look not that difficult, you know, not to move around. But um, when, you know, just in human life being what it is, uh, situations that annoy us in the monastery can get to grow into very large proportions before you know it. And suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm irritated with all of my brothers for this, this, or that. So uh, fortitude allows me to endure this, uh, allows me to endure the attacks, the demonic attacks. So distraction in prayer, not to give in to distraction in prayer, but not to be demoralized by it, but just to wait until uh, uh, these thoughts go away or I understand how to deal with them in a better way. The, the image I like to use, uh, if I can borrow from sports, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, the football teams in the National Football League used to use uh, this defense, the 3-4. Maybe they still do. I don't know. I don't follow football these days. And in this, you have, you have three persons on the line, and you have four linebackers behind the line. So that's why it's called 3-4. The guy in the middle on the line is called the nose tackle. And the goal is he's supposed to be like the biggest guy on the field. You want somebody who's 390 pounds. His job is not to move. Okay, he's, he's usually not fast enough to, to tackle somebody carrying the ball because usually the ball carriers are quick and, and, and uh, the, you're, if you're 390 pounds, you're not usually that quick. But, but the point is, the offensive line is going to try to move you. They're going to try to push you back, you know, hurt you in some way so that you'll move. <laughs> and once you move, the whole defensive line starts to go backward and the running back can just have his way. The other thing you don't want to do is try to tackle the running back if you're the nose tackle. It might sound counterintuitive, but if you see the, the ball carrier there and you lunge for him, you're not going to get him because you're 390 pounds. He's going to run around you this way. And now that you've moved, you've left a gap in the line. So the point of the nose tackle is kind of like what a monk does. You stay in place no matter how much it hurts. You don't move. You don't get distracted. Don't fall for the ball carrier's fake. Just stay where you are because the linebackers are quick. They'll come and take, they'll, they'll tackle the guy. But he has to run around you now because you're a giant and you, you know, <laughs> that's going to slow him down. So don't move. Okay, so this is, that takes fortitude because uh, when you have a, a bunch of other big guys pushing you, uh, the, the temptation is to give up 
<laughs> because it'll just be easier to fall over on the ground and take a break. <laughs> but no, you have to stand there and, and not move. So this is uh, something about the, the gift of fortitude allows us to endure suffering uh, and uh, not get discouraged and not get distracted, not, not give ourselves over to entertainments or something because it's unpleasant. Uh, knowledge is very close to understanding, but it's seeing things from God's perspective. So looking at, um, looking at others, for example, from God's perspective. I think uh, one of the great gifts we can offer each other is to see our brothers and sisters in the faith as lovable. You know, um, It's often the case that, again, sometimes the more familiar we are with people, sometimes if we're not familiar enough with them, uh, other people can baffle us or, or just seem... Uh, to be annoying or, or strange or unintelligent or whatever. Uh, but from God's perspective, of course, every one of us is potentially an adopted daughter or son of God, if not already a member of the church. And uh, so this person is loved by God and therefore lovable. And so for us then to love our brothers and sisters because God loves them, uh, this, is, this partakes of the gift of knowledge because we see uh, this person from uh, as willed by God, you know. None of us would be here if God didn't love us and want us here and, and want us to share in his life. So he loves each one of us for ourselves and we can love our brothers and sisters for the same reason. Piety, uh, this is sometimes, uh, this has different uh, translations. Uh, but the basic idea of this is it is uh, what perfects the virtue of religion. Religion is a, a division of justice. It's a very interesting idea. So justice is that cardinal virtue that allows us to give to others what is due to them and to receive from them what is due to us so that we build up a stable body together. Um, uh, so this means honoring authority in a certain way. This means helping the poor, the disadvantaged in some way. Uh, this is just to do this. It means paying our bills. Uh, means, uh, you know, how, how justice works. Not committing crimes. Uh, atoning, making reparation when we've hurt uh, someone else. Religion is that part of justice that deals with our relationship with God. What we owe God. And uh, we owe God worship. We owe God reverence fidelity, and so on. And so piety is what perfects this virtue and helps us to understand just the extent to which we're dependent on God uh, and, and therefore to be reticent to do too many things that uh, would give the impression that we're not dependent on God in some way or other, right? So uh, humility, trust, and love. And to see this reliance as something good, like, why wouldn't I rely on God? I, I mean, why not, why not accept God's gift to me of myself and, and, and receive my life from God? Sometimes I, I speak of the kingdom of God being, a, you know, a total reliance on God at every moment, you know, and, and knowing myself as, as dependent on God at every moment and receiving God's love through others. So this is the kingdom of God breaking through into our midst right now. Um, and then finally, fear of the Lord is uh, seeing God's splendor breaking out everywhere we look. Uh, so um, 
whether we, I was uh, working in the garden yesterday planting these little tiny carrot seeds, you know? Like, it's amazing that uh, you put this in the ground and you put water on it and sun and uh, it turns into a carrot, you know? Uh, and, uh, but this is the same for anything living, you know? That you, you start with human beings, you start with one cell and it has everything that we're going to become is, is somehow encoded in that and uh, the more you study human reproduction and how cells uh, divide, differentiate, um, you know, so, so this one cell has to become several different kinds of cells. Each one of these cells has to know like how much to reproduce before stopping. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible that this is all coded in there. Even if it, uh, you know, if God made use of evolution and this came about through random chance, even crazier in a sense, you know, uh, it's amazing uh, to, to understand the distances of things, understand the strangeness of the subatomic particles, uh, to, to reckon with how it is that we can listen to music and it makes sense, even though there's no conceptual content to it. You know, you can listen to a symphony and there are no words uh, and you can actually understand, you get to the end of it, you, you, or you can not understand it if it's a bad composer. <laughs> you know, but somehow music uh, communicates something or other. What is it exactly? It's really mysterious. Um, I, I, I personally think the world is a lot more mysterious than we tend to think from moment to moment. And this was uh, back in the day when I was arguing with atheists regularly. This was one of my main criticisms of them. You don't see how, how incredibly mysterious the, the world is and um, that there's something going on here of communication, information in the world. Who put it there? I mean, information is, is communication. Who's trying to communicate with us? I would say it's God. Um, so the fear of the Lord helps us to see this in, in the world. All right. Um, now, the fruits of the Spirit and the charisms, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because I do want to spend a little bit of time exegeting for you uh, the great uh, Veni Creator Spiritus hymn, which is on page two. So I'll just say, the fruits of the Spirit, if you want to grow in the spiritual life, meditate on the fruits of the Spirit. When you do your examination of conscience at night, ask yourself, um, am I growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. Uh, there, there are the fruits of the flesh too, by the way, the works of the flesh. You can check, check and see if you're uh, having trouble with those. Uh, so I, I use this as a, an examination of conscience regularly. Um, and again, if, 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 if this isn't the case, then I can ask the Holy Spirit, uh, help me to bring forth the fruit that is proper to the spiritual life rather than the life in the flesh. Um, and the fruits of the Spirit are distinguished from the gifts because the fruits depend on us in a certain way. Uh, so fruit, to bear fruit, a plant has to be fertilized, it has to be, right? it has to, uh, uh, be pollinated, and then it has to grow according to its own inner logic, and it brings forth fruit. Uh, to do that, it also requires, as I was saying, sun, rain, maybe weeding, pruning, all that kind of stuff. So our spiritual life will bring forth similar fruit if we're watered regularly, if we receive the sun, if we're pruned. Don't, don't resist pruning. 
I lived with a, a woman who was a fantastic landscaper, and uh, she, uh, she rented her house to us, and then uh, she would stay with us for one month in the spring and one month in the fall, and sort of take care of everybody's lawns in Hyde Park. And uh, if, you, if you know someone who's a really good gardener and you're not good at gardening, one of the things that's shocking is, say, in the spring or fall, a really good gardener will go at plants and prune them back really hard, right? And you think, oh no, you're gonna kill that plant. I, I'm afraid to cut it back so much, right? And I remember talking to Martha about this and, and remarking, uh, not only am I reluctant to, uh, to prune these plants, but when I get pruned, I'm, I'm reluctant to take it too because I feel like I'm gonna die if, I, if God you know, takes something away from me or, or gives me a challenge that seems too hard for me. Uh, it could just be that he's pruning me back so that the fruit will be more abundant later on, right? And this is what you find, is if you don't prune fruit trees, they get overgrown and then the fruit uh, doesn't get enough energy because it's trying to do, the, the trunk can't produce enough uh, sap to feed all the different pieces of fruit and none of them grow well. So you have to prune these things back and it's the same with us. Charisms, according to 1 Corinthians 12. I won't read all this. I just wanted to point out some important things about this that we often miss. So when we talk about you know, charismatic renewal or something like that, which was really big in the 60s and 70s, uh, I'm old enough to remember it. Uh, uh, for some reason, the, we always, people, maybe Christians don't do this as much as they used to in the 70s and 80s, but often think of praying in tongues as like the, the quintessential charismatic expression. Well, actually, according to St. Paul, it's pretty far down the list. And above that, you've got, this is the very bottom of this page. You have apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, healers, helpers, administrators, and then speaking in tongues. <laughs> so what is it about administration that's so important, more important than speaking in tongues? Elsewhere, you know, Paul says, if you don't have someone interpret tongues, it's almost better not to have that gift, you know, because what's more important is that the mind understand. Uh, and so you, if you can have someone who can interpret, great. But uh, more important is, say, teachers, someone who can explain the faith to you. Uh, someone who can heal, you know, a, a doctor would be more, it's a more important charism than speaking in tongues. But administrator, I, I find especially interesting because um, in the modern world, we have a bad opinion of administrators. It's thought of as something kind of, you know, unfortunate because we have bureaucracies and this, this and that. But I think, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing, say, in, in Catholic circles in the last 20 years is that we really suffered from failure in administration in a lot of ways. You know, uh, administration, keeping everybody in line, giving everybody their marching orders and making, and then, you know, evaluating whether they're actually making progress or helping them, telling them what not to do, uh, making sure that there are proper uh, corrections in place if someone's doing what they shouldn't do and so on. Uh, this is really an important thing. Uh, making sure that everybody's uh, answerable in some way to the hierarchy. Like all of these things are really important for a body like the Catholic Church, it's a billion people. And if you're going to have some kind of clear sense of the whole, you need administrators. Um, and this it's a difficult task to be good at this. this um, when Pope Francis was elected, this was one of the things that was said about him is that we know that the curia is a really difficult set of jobs. Like, um, again, administering a church of, I don't know how many hundreds of dioceses. 
to make sure everybody is connected to each other, that takes a lot of work and, and uh, skill. And the problem is the curia tends to get kind of isolated from the rest of the church because they, they work in their offices and they get a bunch of papers from different places in the world. And as Cardinal George once said to a group I was with, uh, it's easy un- under those circumstances to forget that there's a person on the other end. Like you get a request from somebody, uh, so, uh, someone needs um, special dispensation from the Holy See for something. Uh, it's a, a good administrator will remember that there's a person that you're responding to in the stack of papers that you have to read and make a decision about. So it's a really important job. Um, we have a tendency to see it as kind of a necessary evil in life, but perhaps we could see it in a more positive light if we connect it to uh, the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to see in these things the work of God. Okay, um, as I said, I'd like to spend a little time explaining the Veni Creator Spiritus because it is such a beautiful hymn and uh, we sing it more frequently in the monastery than uh, you would get simply at regular liturgical observances. Um, This is because whenever we have a big decision to make, we always ask the Holy Spirit's help. So uh, uh, when we have an election of a superior, for example, or if you have... um, uh, a big chapter meeting. So we have our provincial chapter in September at Montserrat, and we will begin by singing the Veni Creator Spiritus because we have a number of decisions to make. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, Veni Creator Spiritus, come Creator Spirit. Remember at the beginning of Genesis, uh, it's quite fascinating how the creation accounts in various places in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, always talk about God's spirit and God's word. So God speaks and, and we speak on, on our breaths, you know. I can't speak to you without breathing. You know, I, if it, their breath and, and word go together in some mysterious way. And so when, at the beginning of creation, there's chaos, tohu vabohu, this mix of crazy stuff, and the spirit is brooding over it. And so the spirit is, is arranging things in a harmonious way and doing so by God's speech. So God speaks to this chaos and it orders itself, right? And in obedience to God's word. Similarly, uh, we have things in the Psalms like, you know, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all the stars. And so we see that God's word and God's breath, the spirit, create and creation is, is, in the Old Testament idiom, is always bringing order out of chaos. So again, the importance of administration, right? Without administrators, things devolve into chaos pretty quickly. <laughs> you don't have somebody, you know, keeping the files in order. <laughs> um, uh, just happened this morning, I went to our sacristan and said, uh, yeah, do we have copies of that processional that we use for Pentecost? Is it in the files? It's not in the files. Oh no, we've got a photocopy and pass it around at 9.35 and try to be in the choir for, for terse. So uh, creation is putting things in order so that we can uh, flourish because without order, we can't flourish. Mentes tuorum visita, visit the minds of your own, tuorum. Uh, as I say, one of the 
principal difficulties we have in understanding the Holy Spirit in the contemporary church is that we have a tendency to conflate the Spirit with our feelings rather than with our minds and wills. Uh, so if someone's spiritual, not religious, they usually mean something like they feel like they're spiritual, but they don't want to have to do stuff, right? Like religion, they don't want to have to go to church or pray, uh, say rote prayers or something like that. But, you know, rote prayers are great because you, you learn when you pray the Our Father over and over again, you learn from our Lord himself what words are appropriate to God, you know, what words are appropriate for us to address God. And so our minds are changed. We understand, hey, wait, God's my father. That's really good, you know? And then, of course, our feelings change, but it's because our minds change first. Our, thought, our thinking changes. So we want the Holy Spirit to visit our minds and conform our minds to the mind of Christ. Imple superna gratia, que tu creasti pectora. So que tu creasti, this is a clause that means those whom you have created. So we're among God's creatures, right? Creator spiritus, his Holy Spirit created us as well. So those whom you've created, fill pectora, imple pectora, fill the breasts or the chests, the hearts of those you created with uh, grace from on high. And gratia, again, just, it just means gifts. So pour into our hearts your gifts. So again, there's not a lack of affectivity in the Holy Spirit's work. It's just, as I say, we have to be careful that we don't exalt whatever feelings we happen to have at this moment and assume that they're, they are God's, what God would have us feel. We should check with our minds and, and work, to, work with the Holy Spirit to feel what we should feel in the circumstances that we have. Okay. Quidiceris paracletus, you who are called the paraclete. So this is an interesting word. Uh, it has several different senses, but the one I want to emphasize today is that of an advocate. And I mean this in a very legal sense. So much of the Old Testament and even a lot of uh, Jewish spirituality today uh, has these legal categories as very fundamental uh, that God has a law, a teaching that he's given us, Torah, and those who are instructed by this law and follow it and conform their lives to it are just. And those who don't uh, lack this, this justice. Um, if we lack justice, we could be in trouble, right? If we, if we do things that are unjust, let's just talk in a, in a regular sort of secular way for a moment. If you do things that are against the law, you could be liable to punishment of various kinds, right? Um, and uh, if you're just, then you're not. Uh, and, and in fact, you will form a, a stable part of the community and people will look to you to, uh, for judgments on things. When there's a dispute about whether someone's broken the law or not, you usually have a prosecutor and a defense attorney, right? Um, a prosecutor in uh, Hebrew is Satan, Satan. Uh, so Satan, the devil, is one who accuses us of being unjust. Um, and uh, God sends the Holy Spirit to be our defender, to be our ad advocate. Uh, we are just because we've been given the gift of baptism, because Christ has died for us and paid uh, whatever uh, penalty we, we had coming for whatever injustices we were party to in various ways. And so the Holy Spirit gives us confidence that when 
when we're accused, when we accuse ourselves or others accuse us uh, of uh, not having God's favor in some way, uh, we, we can have recourse to the Holy Spirit as defense. So uh, sometimes this is translated as comforter, you know, that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit comforts us when we are discouraged or we think, oh gosh, how can I, how can I stand before God because I'm so sinful, you know? Or we, we go to confession and we confess our sins and afterward we're still feeling kind of guilty. No, let the Holy Spirit say, you know, trust in the, in the goodness of this sacrament. You know, if, because the Holy Spirit's been sent for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the priest says in absolution, right? God has sent the Holy Spirit into the world for the forgiveness of sins. And I absolve you from your sins. So whatever doubts you have, call to mind the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent for the forgiveness of sins and we've received that gift. Uh, we should be confident. Altissimi donum dei, gift of God most high. So I've already spoken about this, uh, that... This is God's supreme gift uh, that Jesus hands over to us at the time of his crucifixion. Phones vivus, living font. Uh, so many wonderful ways to think about the Holy Spirit because whatever, uh, whatever is not working in life, you know, however we can characterize, whatever metaphors we want to use, prayer is dry. Well, the living font the Holy Spirit can make our prayer less dry if we, if we ask him to. Uh, enis, fire. Uh, I lack charity for my brothers or sisters. I, um, I feel dull. Well, the fire can be kindled in us. You know, the Holy Spirit can give us uh, a, a sense of light, warmth, purpose. Uh, caritas. Uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit is simply spoken of as God's charity. Uh, in, especially in Western Trinitarian theology, uh, it's often spoken of the Holy Trinity is the Father who generates the Son, who loves the Father in return, and the love that they share is the Holy Spirit. So God's love is, God's charity, caritas, is the Holy Spirit. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we have God's love in us. So whatever failures we have in love, the Holy Spirit can remedy these. Uh, a couple more things. I won't get through all of this. Maybe I'll do something uh, uh, one of these days. I'll write on the blog again. And we'll, we'll get through this because it's, it's, there's a lot of wonderful theology here. I pointed out to the brothers when I was talking about this that septiformis munere, so seven form gift. Uh, we, in the translation we have, it's uh, your sevenfold gifts but actually it's uh, by means of, of a seven form gift, septiformis, munere, munere is singular, it's not plural. And the reason for this is, uh, even though we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit being seven in number, uh, the Holy Spirit is one. And so one image that the fathers of the church love to use for the Holy Spirit is rainwater. So I talked about um, plants growing and uh, all plants drink in water, but the water becomes different types of plants, right? So the water doesn't change. The water, you don't have different kind of water for trees or for cats or for um, whatever, a, a fish, right? It's, it's one substance. Water always is itself, H2O. 
But taken into all these different creatures, it, it blossoms into these different creatures. And so the Holy Spirit is always one. But depending on where we are in our spiritual lives, uh, what we need to function as part of the church, say I as a religious superior, you as laity, uh, the Holy Spirit will give us different things that we need. We'll experience them as, as diverse gifts, but it's one gift in a sense under many forms, right? So the seven form gift is, relates to those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit we spent time on earlier. Uh, but in one sense, they all partake of this one gift, which is the Holy Spirit himself. Digitus paterne dextere. So uh, uh, digitus is a finger of God's right hand. And uh, the, uh, in Jewish tradition, God writes the commandments on the tablets of the law with his finger. So this was uh, uh, a, a great tragedy when Moses broke the tablets because God himself had written on them. But, and so God rewrote on new tablets the law. Uh, so this law was given by the Holy Spirit. But God promises throughout the, whole, the Old Testament that he is going to write his law on our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit is going to engrave on our hearts what we should do, how we should act, how to follow the new commandment of love, right? So this is the Holy Spirit's work to inscribe in us uh, how to act, what to do. Uh, Tu rite promissum patri sermone ditans gutura. So uh, you truly, definitely, the promise of the Father, and uh, you give word to the, literally to the throat, gutura, but you tell us what to speak. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to speak a bit about God's promise, and then we'll stop, and I'll take, I have a couple minutes for questions before we, we depart to pray. So, uh, in the, the book of uh, the prophet Joel, God predicts that uh, in, in the end times, he's going to pour out his spirit on everyone, not just the prophets, right? So, uh, men and women, old men, children, all will prophesy, all will be prophets. And so, the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, I remember many years ago, Sister Diane Burgant gave a talk here. She teaches at CTU, and uh, she said... Uh, you know, when you hear about the New Age, uh, yeah, don't listen to these people because the New Age started at the crucifixion and resurrection. So with the, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, the end times have arrived. Uh, those with faith can see somehow in, in a mysterious way how this is coming about, that the New Age is, is coming into our world now uh, as the old world is passing away. And... This was promised by God that the sign of the end of the world was the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see that um, uh, when the apostles go and visit various places and announce the gospel, uh, they'll see that uh, uh, these various peoples will have received the Holy Spirit already, even though they haven't been baptized yet. How do they know this? Again, I think we have a tendency to think, well, it's because they're speaking in tongues or something like that. I think it's because they look at the scriptures, like the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading Isaiah. He's thinking, what is this about? I don't understand this. And then Philip comes and says, oh, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, 
oh my gosh, I see that. That is, you're right. This is this prophecy has come true. Uh, Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, but he redeemed us from our sins. That understanding means he's received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given this understanding. And they say, well, now that you believe and you see this, you should be baptized, right? So uh, this promise of the Holy Spirit is promised, again, to all of us at deeper and deeper levels. So whenever we struggle to understand what's going on in our situation, uh, we struggle to understand what's going on in our country, which probably some of us here are are wondering what's going on. Uh, When we struggle to understand what's going on in the church, in our families, in the scriptures, in the liturgy, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit is, is breaking in now, is bringing about this end times. And the more we see, the more we understand what's going on, uh, the more we see that the end times have arrived and we're already partaking of, of heaven. And we often talk about the Eucharist as a foretaste of heaven. Uh, when we have eyes to see what's go- really going on at the Eucharist, that Christ is being offered there, that we are receiving Christ himself in the Holy Eucharist. When we see this, we're already with a foot in heaven. We're already living in the end times. And this is the Holy Spirit that is illuminating us so we can see this. So let us pray together to uh, wrap up. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for your many gifts, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit today, by whom is formed the church, the instrument of salvation for the whole world. We ask that through our celebration of Pentecost and through the weeks that follow this great feast, we may be more and more desirous to receive this gift of yours at a deeper and deeper level. Your love, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son forever. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.